we gathered here this evening to remember, to contemplate, and to be in awe of the single most baffling event in human history. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I say baffling because despite our familiarity with it, what actually happens on Golgotha and ancient Palestine under Roman occupation and by the Jewish Sanhedrin to Jesus of Nazareth, what actually transpires in this event is a cosmic mystery that could not be fully understood by us across a thousand lifetimes. The Apostle Paul would have all Christians know that the power of the Gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, is weakness to the religious and foolishness to the scholarly. And wherever you might locate yourself on that spectrum, the cross of Christ looks like weakness to human effort. That's why Paul would have us know that the cross is a scandal to the world. Likewise, in her seminal book on the crucifixion, author Fleming Rutledge rightly concludes that this actual historical event of government-sponsored torture and public execution is a happening without any spiritual overtones, without any religious features. And what that suggests is that when humanity looks at the meaning of Jesus' cross with our own human wisdom, with our own schemes, what we see is a meaningless event. His death seems to be totally pointless. Every comedian that I can think of has some kind of hacky joke about what's so good about Good Friday. Even to the well-meaning secular person, Jesus' crucifixion seems nothing more than a tragically unjust execution carried out because of some political jealousy, some petty rivalry between religious factions. There's actually no redeeming value in the cross. It's a regrettable lynching and nothing more. But as Christians, we believe that this so-called foolishness of God, as Paul calls it, is actually wiser than all of our collective human wisdom throughout the ages. We believe that the weakness of God, this cross, is stronger, is more powerful, is more significant than all of our political and scientific, all of our economic and technological, and even our religious powers. Nothing we could ever achieve, nothing we could ever build, nothing we could ever create could ascend to God's transcendent heights of perfection. Nothing we could do could earn our standing before the Lord. So instead, God and His infinite love and grace descends to our depths of despair through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is so unnatural to us, so unfamiliar, that it's all but impossible for us to believe this. We can't imagine loving our enemies. We can only imagine despising them, hating them, 
And even more, we definitely can't imagine dying for our enemies, giving up everything that's precious to us for the sake of our enemies. We can only imagine killing them, oppressing them, putting them away forever. And yet, John's account testifies to us in earnest and as an eyewitness, one who will spend the remaining and long years of his life in searing pain and in, in, in lonely exile, he tells us the truthfulness of this event so that we might know it and believe it with every fiber of our being. And far from the meaningless death that the world so perceives in His crucifixion, what we find is that all along, God's plan and His purpose was to use this humiliating, unjust, and barbaric execution of His Son to give us life and life abundant in a world that is shackled down by sin and death. This tree from which Jesus hangs, which seems to be a lynching tree and nothing more, is actually a tree that gives us life and gives it to us freely. And the Savior that hangs upon it is the fruit that gives us eternal life when we partake of His flesh and blood. Proceeding tonight's passage, we read how Jesus patiently endured all sorts of humiliating experiences. How He endured the accusations of Annas the high priest. How He, he, he endured the, the inane questions of Pilate, the Roman prefect. And then John tells us that after all this, Jesus is finally whisked away by the Roman police force. He's flogged mercilessly, open hands slapped across the face, and crowned with a tangle of thorns pressing in to the skin of His brow. And if that government humiliation isn't enough, then we see His own people turn on Him. They beg for Him to be crucified, hung naked and alone, hailing Caesar as their only King. The same crowd that on this past Palm Sunday was ushering Him in in ecstatic joy now calls for His execution. And yet we read that as Jesus is marched off to the place of the skull, what we've come to know in, in, in Golgotha or in Aramaic as Golgotha and Latin as Calvary, his secret identity comes to the forefront. The world sees weakness, it sees a pathetic man, but God shows us who he really is. Hanged between two criminals on either side, Jesus is stretched out, spread thin in the middle, and we read on a sign above His head, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. What's meant to be a charge of treason, what's meant to be a sarcastic jab, reveals the actual truth of who He is. It's truth for everyone too not just for some. And we know that because it's written in the local vernacular of Aramaic. But it's also given to us in the imperial dialect of Latin that the Roman Empire uses. But we also have it in the, the universal, the world language of Greek. This is no mere Jewish rabbi. This is Jesus the King, 
the king of everyone. In verse 21, the religious elite of the day recoil at the thought of this. We read how they petition Pilate to change it. They can't imagine the kind of king that would hang bloodied and abandoned on a torture device. And we can hardly imagine that either. Don't write that he is king, the priests say. Pilate, simply write that he says that he's king. It's amazing to me that Pilate responds with words that almost sound downright prophetic. Almost like something we'd read from an Old Testament scroll. He says, what I have written, I have written. Indeed. Pilate's written word to the world's surprise are simply echoes of what God's Spirit Himself has been communicating through the Old Testament Scriptures all along. Both our psalm reading and Old Testament reading tonight have shown us who Jesus really is and what He's really come to do. John tells us in in David's words, as those are fulfilled, as Jesus closed, His only worldly belongings to a man who's given everything of his away, who's given everything of himself, they take his only garb and callously gamble it away while he's surrounded on all sides by evildoers and enemies. Jesus, who's been wholly obedient to the Father, bringing only light and life and love to humanity, is, to quote Isaiah, counted among the rebels. His seamless garment maybe reminds us of Joseph's coat at the, uh, towards the end of Genesis. You remember that Joseph was a favored son and the one who though he went through such excruciating trials ended up saving all of the known world. Perhaps we are to read Jesus through this lens. And yet, if, even if that is the case, What we see with our eyes is a man hanging naked and alone before the world. And speaking of favored sons, at his feet stands, or probably more realistically, is collapsed in her knees in agony, his own mother, Mary, along with her sister, perhaps who's named Salome, as another Gospel tells us. And we have another Mary, the wife of Clopas or, 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 or Cleophas, as he's sometimes called in Luke 24. And of course, there's Mary Magdalene, a longtime disciple of Jesus, one who spent her own fortune and wealth in supporting his ministry, a man who loved her when no one else did, who drove seven demons from her body and soul so that she might be free. Notice that none of his male disciples are there. Notice that the apostles, James and Peter, part of his inner circle, are nowhere to be found. And John, who's there, is probably only there because he's still young enough in the face, looks like a child that he could be with the women and not be rounded up as a, as a male insubordinate along Jesus. And neither are any of the, the secret followers we see 
or, or the secret followers amongst the Pharisees, like Nicodemus who are interested in Jesus. We don't see any of the Gentile people with, with clout and status, the people whom He loved and, and delivered. Anybody of status and means has left Him to His own devices. And remember the crowds that we read about on Palm Sunday that were whipped up into an ecstatic frenzy. Now they're screaming out insults, pleading for a death that's miserable and lonely. And yet in the middle of all this betrayal, when Jesus is at His lowest, we find a Jesus that still cares so deeply for the least and the lowliest. Can you imagine in your worst moment thinking about anybody but yourself? And that's exactly what we find here. Seeing Mary, His mother, most likely widowed by this time, maybe in her late 40s, early 50s, still a young woman in many ways, and without little or, or, or perhaps no personal income. He honors His parents. Still upholding the law of Moses to the last. And He gives Mary to John the disciple. And He gives John to Mary to be a new family. He provides for His people even in His worst moments. And that provision we see between those two is only the beginning of what we see Him provide for everyone. After hours of excruciating pain and loneliness, after the seismic heartbreak of bearing the full weight of sin and death while no one seems to care. Jesus whimpers out finally, I'm thirsty. He echoes to us David's lament in Psalm 69. And shoved into His face is not cool, clear water, water to, to, to quench His parched throat. No, what He gets is a bitter drink with a hyssop branch recalling the bitter herbs and the dark wine and the hyssop branch sprinkled with blood. All symbols used by Israel during their Passover worship. A time in which they remember when they were unloved in this world, when they had no power and agency or advocate that God shows up on their behalf. Sending a perfect lamb to be slaughtered and so that blood would be smeared over the doorposts of their home and God's justice would pass over them, bringing only mercy instead. And so here, right as Passover is about to begin, Jesus is becoming the new and perfect Lamb. It's His blood that trickles down into the cup. It's a cup of wrath that He drains for us so that He can pass along a cup of peace and fellowship instead. The hyssop branch is spackled with His blood as He sighs, it is finished. Collapsing His head and His soul sinking down into the depths of Sheol. Or as Isaiah 53 claims, He willingly submitted Himself to death for us. Is it any wonder that this event, as described, is something the world wants to turn its face away from? We blush at something so embarrassing, so degrading, so humiliating. Nothing about this is polite for us to bring up in civilized company. 
It's a miserable execution of a poor man humiliated before the world with mocking crowds and sobbing mothers. A man is lynched in a tree for nothing. Or so it seems. And yet what seems like pure tragedy to us, a total waste, utter meaninglessness is actually the beginning of an entirely new world. The religious people want to get His mangled corpse off the cross so they can bury it in an unmarked grave and forget about Him to history. So they urge the soldiers to to swiffen the death. Go around and break the legs of those being crucified to let them suffocate under their own weight. A terrible way to die. And so they do that. They go around shattering the leg bones of the criminals around Him. So that these religious people, with all of their status and dignity in society, can go off to their services and pretend that they're holy. And yet, when they get to Jesus, they find that to their surprise, He's already dead. But just to add insult to injury, just for good measure, they drive a spear up underneath his ribs. And when they pull it out, a miracle happens. It's no surprise that blood pours out of his wound, but something else pours out as well. We read that blood and water flow freely out of his side. The tree of death has suddenly borne fruit that is giving life. Water and wine for all to drink and to live. Suddenly things come into stark relief for us, don't they? John urges us at this very short account of the crucifixion of Jesus to close our eyes and to think hard about what we've just seen. What does all this mean? Is it really meaningless like the world says? Or is this the most meaningful thing to have ever taken place in human history? And what we see in the wake of sin's misery and death's cruelty is the King of glory on a cross becoming the first fruit of a new tree of life for us. Our primordial parents, Adam and Eve, Man and life is what their name means respectively in the Hebrew. They chose a human path of wisdom. They ignored God's tree of life and went instead to the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil so they could take of it and rule this world according to their own human wisdom. And we followed them in that path, creating chaos and war and famine and plague and death ever since. That's what all our collective wisdom has brought us in this world. But Jesus was born to be the second Adam, the second man. A new human being who chose God's wisdom. Not His own path, but chose the wisdom of the Lord. And instead, by doing so, He ushered in a new way of us being alive for everyone. His kingdom begins 
not with a, a crown and a throne, but with thorns and a cross. His rule begins with love for his enemies and forgiveness for his weak-willed friends. And his wounds pour out not just blood, the thing that pumps in his, through his own heart and body to keep him alive, but with water, the thing that nourishes all of us to keep us alive. He is the rock upon which the world is founded. And yet, He's also the rock that we read about in the Old Testament that was struck by Moses and pours out life-giving water to all who would come. To everyone who is willing to drink. And He offers to quench your thirst here tonight, church, at this supper table. And this communion. Jesus meets us through His remembered crucifixion. His body, the bread. His blood, the cup. A new Passover for a new people. He is the King who forgives you of your worst sins by becoming the sacrifice that you yourself could never offer. The deepest, darkest moments you have of shame that you would never want anyone to know, Jesus has looked into it and taken that burden away from you forever. Do you thirst for that kind of love? Do you hunger for that kind of acceptance and forgiveness? Then my final word to you tonight is come partake of the tree of life that is the Lord Jesus' cross and experience eternal life even now. Come and repent of your sins and of yourself and be assured that through His crucifixion, they've already been forgiven. And come, eat and drink because before you ever knew it, you were loved and accepted by God. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to this supper table, we ask that You pour out your grace and mercy, your love and forgiveness, your hope and future to us for whom Christ died. Even while we were at our worst, even when we were enemies of the cross, so that we might come to Him for life and love, both now and forever. For it's in His name and by His cross and to His glory we now pray. Amen.